I'm Bob Cudmore, and this is the Historian's Podcast. An interesting topic today. We're going to talk about desire and jewelry, the history thereof. We're on the line to California and Asia Raiden. How you doing, Asia? I'm great. How are you? Okay. Asia Raiden, I understand, is a jewelry designer, but also an historian. And her new book is called Stoned. Yes, Stoned. But the subtitle tells you a bit more. Jewelry, Obsession, and How Desire Shapes the World. It's published by HarperCollins. Um, of the questions I've seen asked of you, the one that I'd like to start with is this. I mean, stones are everywhere. Uh, jewel, I mean, jewels, quote unquote, are everywhere. What makes a stone a gem? That is exactly what the first section of the book deals with. Um, imaginary value, essentially. It asks just that question. What, what makes a stone a gem? Why is one more valuable than the other? Is it entirely social, social pressures? Um, is it emotional? Is, it, is there something intrinsically valuable about certain stones? And ultimately, the conclusion I came to is that it's a combination of scarcity, the scarcity effect, which has been observed in uh, neurological and psychological studies separately, that people believe things are more valuable for no reason whatsoever if there are less of them than something else. It has an actual effect on your brain. Mm-hmm. And when you add into that mix a little bit of deliberate propaganda, like the kind of beers spun for us all in the 40s and 50s about the scarcity of diamonds and the value of diamonds, in fact, they're incredibly ubiquitous. Mm. Uh, it's enough to, to make you believe the lie. And when it comes to other gemstones, you know, there's an element of beauty for beauty's sake, but... Mostly, it's just how hard they are to get. Mm. And you say they also, they have to be desired. People have to want them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An economist named Frank Hirsch coined the term positional good in the 1970s. It's an item or service, usually an item, that has no intrinsic value. Its value is determined entirely in relative nature to another of its kind, like a diamond ring. My diamond ring isn't necessarily worth anything until I know what size diamond the girl next to me has. And then it's worth more or less than hers. So it's sort of an emotional tautology. Everybody has to have it because everybody has to have it. Mm-hmm. Let me start. Wants- Let me ask. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was stepping on what you were saying. Oh, I was just going to say, everybody wants what no one can have. And if everyone can have something, no one wants it. And it's like like neuroeconomic musical chairs. The one uh, story that you tell in the book about the eight jewels that changed the course of history has to do with the purchase of Manhattan Island and also Staten Island from Mm -hmm. Native Americans by the Dutch who gave them glass beads. But you say that back then they weren't just, I mean, they were, gla- they were glass beads, but they were really gems of the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's in that first section. It deals with what makes a stone a gem. What, how real is imaginary value? So everyone hates that story 
you know, historically that that Manhattan was bought for glass beads because they assumed that the sellers were swindled, but they actually got a really good price. Um, glass beads, Venetian glass beads were called trade beads, and they were used by Europeans throughout that era, you know, the 14, 15, 1600s, to go to distant places that maybe didn't have glass, certainly didn't have Venetian glass, and they were used sort of like traveler's checks. They were accepted everywhere, and in an interesting spin on arbitrage, they were really worth a lot more to the people they were trading with than they were to the Europeans because they had glass. But when you get to the Americas, they, interestingly enough, never developed glass, not as we know it. So, I mean, they had volcanic glass, but they didn't have glass beads. And they did have their own system of currency, and it was based on beads. So these new, exotic, unobtainable beads were not a swindle. It was it was a fair deal, you know. They sold them an mm-hmm. island for the equivalent of a sack full of gems. Well, that uh, story, of course, takes place in New York State, and uh, this program's based in New York, and we frequently focus on the history of New York State. I heard you in an interview on uh, public radio uh, mention something that r- relates specifically to the area where we originate. I think you said you were you were wearing the stones of a fa- famous Native American tribe from our uh, region or uh, American Indian nation, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it would be the Mohawk Nation uh, who called themselves the Kanye Kanyaka, which means people of the crystals. Uh, they were known for having great stores of what up here we call Herkimer diamonds or Little Falls diamonds. Yes, yeah. I love Herkimer diamonds. Yeah. And I love so that, what go ahead. Are. They're so beautiful. And they're uh, natural for your listeners, if they're not aware they were at one point mistaken for diamond deposits. They're in upstate New York and Pennsylvania because they're these crystals that form in this perfect shape, very much like diamonds. They're uh, pointed at either end. And a lot of them are clear and they're glittery and they're just they're incredible. Mm. But, you know, again, they, they aren't worth what what diamonds are worth, you know, I guess real diamonds, That's but I, they I don't suppose they could a, be lobby like the beer saying they are but they were worth quite a lot to the mohawk oh yes they were i mean apparently they used them for as you said they for trading and for uh, making the wampum belts and and so on and so forth mm-hmm. yeah yeah that the first chapter deals a lot with wampum which is i'm sure your listeners know this because they're locals but it was shell beads it was um Quahog shells, and there was uh, the purple growth rings and the white inner spiral, and they they used them very much the same way we use gems. On the one hand, they were money. On the other hand, they were adornment and status symbols, those woven wampum belts, and, you know, could be used for any number of things um, as a sign of a pact or an agreement like an engagement ring would be. It's mm-hmm. a diamond, it's money, but it's also symbolic of an agreement. And wampum belts were exchanged at the purchase of Manhattan. Asia Raiden is with us, author of Stoned, Jewelry, Obsession, and How Desire Shapes the World. Another story uh, about uh, how 
uh, jewelry uh, affected the course of history, if you will, um, is the story of the first wristwatch and a kind of a follow-up to that. Uh, I, I never thought about that, you know, where, where the first wristwatch came from. Where did it come from? Well, you know, it's fascinating because people associate wristwatches with men. But interestingly enough, until the turn of, basically the turn of the century, a little before, it never occurred to anybody to strap one to their wall, to their wrist. They carried them as pocket watches. And um, they were like laptops in their time. They were desperately expensive and very fragile. And owning one was, on the one hand, often necessary, but it was also a luxury item. And there was this woman, this countess, uh, Countess Toskowitz, and she wanted to make a point uh, about how much money she had and sort of show up this other princess. So she went to Patek Philippe, who were one of the most innovative watch companies of the time. They were very much like Apple. They made just the coolest, uh, most technologically advanced watches. And she said, I want you to replace the diamond in my bracelet with a perfect functioning clock, not a lady's clock, because rich ladies had wrist, had pocket watches, but they were decorative because it was presumed they had nowhere important to be. And they took the commission, and it took them about five years, but they managed it, and she had the very first functioning wristlet. And it made a huge sensation, and everyone loved it, and everybody wanted one, women anyway, not men. It was considered deeply effeminate to wear one of these until war broke out, and the Boer Wars, led right to the World War One, And the Boer Wars were really the very beginning of technological war. They had flashless gunpowder. They had all sorts of things. And then, of course, World War One, you've gone from, you know, bayonets and cavalry charges to airplanes and bombs and creeping barrages and machine guns. So winding a pocket watch was no longer going to work. Timing became increasingly important, and having your hands free for that gas mask also became increasingly important. And so what they did, and they found themselves stuck in the trenches like this, was they remembered the ladies' watches back home, and they snapped the fronts off their pocket watches, and they strapped them down to their wrist, and they called them strap-ons. And when they got home, victorious from the Boer Wars, they said, we need these. This is necessary. It's not effeminate. And the War Commission would inevitably start issuing them as part of a military kit but they had new-founded companies making sort of rough, tough men's versions with grills and, and out of stainless steel. And one of those companies was Rolex, and they still make stainless steel watches. And it was sort of the linchpin piece of technology that helped the Allies win World War One because the Germans didn't have them. They mm. thought it broke too much with tradition, and they still used pocket watches throughout World War One. That's something. And in fact, at some point, didn't they call these watches trench watches they did yeah they stopped calling them strap-ons when they started making them for real they didn't have to jerry rig no pun intended and um they called them trench watches and you can still find in an antique dealer can find you a trench watch and it's a modified pocket watch hmm. they don't quite look like modern wrist watches yet at mm -hmm. that point but it was because of the trench warfare that they were used in Another uh, the thing I want to draw you out on is another point you make or research you've done. Green tinted jewelry is um, is 
common or maybe not common, but very much desired in many cultures. Why, why is green important uh, in the jewelry business? Well, green is uh, biologically important. It's 510 nanometers is the wavelength of light that your eyes see preferentially. You see it more clearly, you see it more vividly, and it pops out at you. And it's because you evolved to look for that color. And the reasoning is obvious, you know, food. Um, we've been evolving eyeballs for a long time. But because of that, it has a physical effect on you. When you stare at, at green anything, really, but particularly something emitting light like a gemstone, it has this physiological effect where your blood pressure lowers. You become simultaneously relaxed and excited. It's uh, physiologically, it's a big deal. That's where you get green room before you go on to perform. It's where it's why hospitals and prisons have started painting rooms green to have a physical neurological effect on the people living there. And so, green has always been a a color that's been a very big deal to everyone. Supposedly Emperor Nero watched the game in Rome through thin slices of emerald glasses. And uh, they were used to treat migraines as well. <laughs> also, uh, could you tell us the story of how a necklace started the French Revolution? Oh, yeah. That's a great story. Um, so... Marie Antoinette was 14 when she was imported to France. She's sort of the symbol of uh, French decadence, but the truth is she was uh, from Austria, and she was not like that when she got there, and she was quite conservative, as they tended to be um, in, the in the Hofburg Palace. And she disliked the mistress of the current king, her her soon-to-be husband, the Dauphin's grandfather, and his mistress was, uh, to say a frivolous woman would be an understatement. She was basically a prostitute who everyone politely called an actress, but he adored her, and he had a necklace commissioned for her, and it was more like a wearable chandelier. It took years to assemble the 2,500 carats of diamonds necessary to make it. Uh, it weighed six pounds, just in jewels. And he died shortly before it was finished. And so the jewelers were hysterical and leveraged up to their eyeballs. And uh, Marie Antoinette saw to it that this woman, this um, mistress, Madame de Berry, was kicked right out of court. And then the jewelers came to her and said, we have this wonderful necklace. And she was like, okay, you can stop it right there. I know who that was for, and I don't want it. And they were in a panic when this woman, who was essentially a high-placed con artist with two cents worth of royal blood, was floating around court, and she set up this elaborate long con involving a disgraced cardinal and the jewelers and Marie Antoinette, who didn't know she was involved. As she posed as her best friend. And she convinced the cardinal that Marie Antoinette wanted the necklace and he would help buy it for her, and he would be back in favor. And, of course, she just stole the necklace and ran off and sold the stones. But at the same time, there was this new thing happening that we would come to know as the tabloid media. 
because of the printing presses, people could not get enough of scandalous stories about famous people, particularly royalty. And Marie Antoinette was sort of, in that sense, the Kim Kardashian of her day. She was in every (laughs) scandal sheet. And people just loved hearing terrible stories about her. So when this happened, it became the trial of the century. And though the truth came out about all of it, every detail, who had been tricked and who hadn't and who had stolen what, um, it didn't matter because it was the court of public opinion at that point. And her perceived misdeeds were more on trial than the actual crime. And it was when they began calling her the queen of debt. And they, the public, they're not the court, believed that she had done all of these things, even though she was proven innocent and not on trial herself. They believed she'd seduced a cardinal. They believed she'd embezzled money from the crown, enough to, you know, build a palace with. Uh, And they were already starving and on their own last nerve. And that was was it. That was the last straw. Benjamin Franklin said, no, it wasn't Benjamin Franklin. It was... um, Jefferson mm-hmm. said, uh, I had ever believed had there been no queen, there would have been no revolution. Mm. And he was specifically referring to the necklace affair. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Asia Raiden, author of Stoned, Jewelry, Obsession, How Desire uh, Shapes the World. Love the stories about these uh, stones that changed uh, history. Uh, I said at the beginning, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong now, uh, that you're a jewelry designer and historian. But, it, I mean, um, what is what is your life? I mean, you much invo- you're much involved in the jewelry business? or uh, and, uh, I'm just kind of curious about that. I have been involved in the jewelry business. I, I know a little something about obsession with shiny things. I've been designing jewelry uh, semi-professionally since I was 12. And uh, my mother said, well, you know, this won't do. You can't just keep spending money and got me a job in a pawn shop. And I loved it. I learned more there than I learned in, you know, the school I went to for, for jewelry and jewelry making. And I went to college like you do. I went to the University of Chicago where um, I studied history and physics. And when I finished, I thought, well, what am I going to do with this degree? I know I'll be a jewelry designer. So I moved to Los Angeles, and I got a job with a company, and I worked my way up to the you know, lead designer, and I loved it. It was a wonderful job. And, um, I mean, if you love jewelry, that's pretty much what you want to do. And so I designed jewelry for them for about seven years, And then I was on a little sabbatical in Paris at a friend's birthday party when the woman next to me said, I heard you design jewelry. And she was wearing an engagement ring I had designed several years before at that job. And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, what kind? And I said, well, you know, funny, her husband is my book agent because he said, he said, oh, my God, Stephen, Stephen, she designed my ring. And he said, really, is it a good one? And I said, yeah, it's a good one. Of course, it's a good one. Thanks <laughs> for your confidence. And he said, no, the diamond. And he, like everyone else, was very keen to know if he had bought the right thing, which is an interesting aspect of jewelry. People's jewelry is so much more than just ornamentation. It's symbol and signifier, and it's a method of communication to other people 
uh, about what class you're part of and all sorts of things. And he was, like everyone, keen to know that he had bought the right thing, that diamond was good enough. And I said, yeah, you know, it's it's fine. We're in a dark restaurant in Paris, and I don't, I don't, I'm not going to get my loop out. And he said, what do you mean? It's It's not. And I said, well, the truth about diamonds, if you want, I mean, do you want to know the truth about diamonds? We'd all had a little champagne at this point, honestly. And uh, he was insistent that he did. And I said, the truth about diamonds is they're all the same, really. And they're not that valuable. It's manufactured value. There's something called the diamond overhang. And if they ever sold those diamonds, they would cost, I mean, they would be like dragway gravel. They would cost less than quartz. And he was stunned to hear that. And he said, so they were always worthless. And I said, no, before the South African diamond rush, there was a time when they really were valuable and rare. And they came from India, mostly. And I was telling him the story about the French Revolution, and he stopped me and he said, do you want to write a book? And that's how that happened. Really? So this is your first book? It is. What's been the reaction of your colleagues in the jewelry game? Measured. I expected them to dislike it, diamonds at least. But um, on the whole, I find other jewelry designers, um, jewelry experts, they find it fascinating. They love it. It's, um, it's quite the talk of the jewelry industry at the moment. Mm, I'm sure it is. Probably, but I'm sure there are people at the beers who don't love it. Yeah. But but there's a chapter on the birth of biotech and cultured pearls. And there's a, a chapter on emeralds and how they led toward the invention of paper money. So this isn't a burn book about how jewelry is worthless. It's more about uh, – it's a reexamination of value and mm. valuables and values and the strange murky area between them yeah and i notice you have uh, an endorsement from uh, at least one famous person madonna says money power yeah. sexual politics and jewelry isn't this what makes the world go wrong what around what more could i ask for in a book <laughs> your Freudian slip is showing sir <laughs> yes i guess so um the yeah that i like that was a wonderful endorsement um I've gotten a few nice ones, but that was the first one, the one that's on Amazon. Well, do you think you'll you'll change gears here? Maybe you'll you'll stay as a as a writer. I have been asked to write a follow up and possibly a third one, and I'm working on them now. All right. Well, I thank you very much uh, for joining us, Asia Raiden. She's author of Stoned Jewelry Obsession and How Desire Shapes the World. It's published by Harper Collins. I, I guess I, I just can't resist this one more question. What does the diamond on your finger have to do with the GI Bill? Oh, that's actually not a short answer. What it is is, so De Beers, the diamond rush happened in South Africa. De Beers spent decades consolidating control of 99% of the diamond interests that there were to be had. At this point, they are, dare I say, a cartel. At this point in the story, I mean. They have all the diamonds. World War II happens. By the time World War I and World War II are over, they have no one to sell these diamonds to. Their first problem is that they found far too many. 
they expected a diamond rush. They didn't expect a diamond deluge that would never stop, and it never has stopped. We find more every year. And um, that's to this day. There are billions of carats of cut, polished diamonds on the planet in human hands. And um, they said, well, we can take care of that. We'll just lie. We'll just say there aren't that many and hold them back and sell them for inflated prices. And that worked right up until World War II. And then during World War II, they lost their market. By the time it was over, there was very little left of the old class structure where, where there were not just kings and queens and princesses, but there was this whole upper class of aristocracy that were buying diamonds, you know? There were a few left, but not many. And so they looked west to America where all the money was. And the new class that was coming up in the world was this strange thing, the middle class, which was created in large part by the GI Bill. They all got to go to college, you know, two chickens in every pot. It was um, a fascinating turning point in economic and social history. So De Beers said, here's our new market. They have all the money. The problem is they have it diffusely. Everybody has a little bit. So we can't sell a tiara to any of them. What we can do is cut those diamonds up into little tiny diamonds and put them in something. And they went to an advertising agency. This was the beginning of real market um, psychological manipulation. What you think of as the cigarette model of advertising, get mm -hmm. them young, convince, sell them on a lifestyle. It was all borrowed from the diamond model of advertising. This company, NW Ayers, helped them invent a product. The diamond engagement ring, it was just emotional enough and just small enough that they could sell one to everyone, and they did. <laughs> and they Fasc still do, actually. Well, fascinating. And again, Asia Raiden, I thank you for joining us on the Historian's Podcast. You have a good day. Thank you very much. You too. How about that, Dave? I had a Freudian slip during this program. That might have been the first we've had on this particular uh, show. Exactly how did that happen, Bob? What happened? I don't know. And at first, I, I didn't really understand it at first, but then she pointed out I made this mistake. See, it's Madonna. You know Madonna. I mean, uh, I think of Madonna as a real sexy person, um, but of course she is rather on in years to some younger members in our audience. And she said of this uh, book called Stoned, which is not about what you might think, you know, with marijuana and so forth being so much in the news, but it's about jewelry. Madonna said, money, power, sexual politics, and jewelry. Isn't that what makes the world go wrong, is what I said. But actually what Madonna said, it makes the world go round. I, I, well, I guess it's a toss-up as to who's correct. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but I thought that this uh, woman was fascinating, Asia Raiden. Uh, lives out in California, Beverly Hills even. Did you, did you yeah, catch the, that? The, the flats of Beverly Hills, I believe, is what she said. I, also, I don't know where this that was is. off the air, right, But before we started. When we got her on the phone, you asked her, well, how are things going in uh, L.A.? And she said, oh, it's awful. It's raining. So we get more scared of rain than earthquakes. I thought, I thought you were going to say something about cats falling from the sky. or yeah. I, well, I, A little too much rain in Los Angeles and the city washes away. I think it does. Think. And, uh, well, it sounds like she's done quite well in the jewelry business. 
And uh, it is interesting. I mean, she's sort of like pulling the curtain back. So um, maybe some of her friends in the jewelry game aren't too happy. Yeah, I, they let, they let, once again, we'll make this reference. Now the cat's out of the bag. I guess so. This has been the Historian's uh, Podcast with Dave Green. I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>